Genesis 32, verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favour in your eyes. Uh, The next reading is just over the page, and it'll be Genesis 32, verse 22. Verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his uh, two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford uh, of the Jacob. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over uh, his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go, unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Uh, And our final reading will be Genesis 35, verse 1 to 15. Verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you, and purify yourselves, and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had, and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under an oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on all the towns around them, so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is, Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakur. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. 
A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and to Isaac I also give to you, and I will give, these to, give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, special welcome to you if this is your first time here at St. Stephen's or you're visiting. It's great to have you here and hope that you feel warmly welcomed by our church family here at St. Stephen's. Uh, well, uh, let's pray before we get into this passage. Our gracious God, uh, help us to see today that you're the only one we can truly depend on and help us to make you the only one that we worship in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, we've been in the book of Genesis and we're at the end today, we're at the end of the Jacob story or the Jacob account. Uh, Genesis is actually divided into different accounts or stories. And if you read along the, you know, the, the story of Genesis, you, you might have noticed those words. This is the account of X, you know, this is the account of the heavens and the earth, which is when God made the world. This is the account of Noah, this is the account of Isaac, and the account of Jacob is actually at the heart of the book of Genesis. It's the longest one. It's where we've been in the last couple of weeks. And today we're at the end of this Jacob account. After this, Jacob, uh, Genesis will focus on Jacob's children. But today's reading, and particularly Genesis 32, uh, it's actually probably the most significant moment in Jacob's life. This is the biggest moment for Jacob, a moment that really shapes his future. And in this big moment for Jacob, it comes as Jacob has to face his biggest fear. Uh, so and, you know, kids, you've actually been going through the book of Genesis too. Um, in, in your kids' program, you might remember that Jacob's story begins with him cheating his brother Esau, right, for his birthright and then for his blessing. Esau, you know, he wants, he vows to kill Jacob because of this. And so Jacob runs away. He runs to his uncle Laban's house and he runs away and there he meets Leah and marries Leah and Rachel and he's tricked by his uncle Laban into working for him for decades. But in this time, God blesses Jacob with a family and uh, with lots of animals and livestock, he becomes quite rich. And then God calls Jacob to come home, to go back to the land which he has promised him. And so Jacob leaves, he takes his family, he takes all that he has to come home. Yet in coming home, Jacob has to confront the one person that he's really afraid of, Esau. And remember, he's out to kill Jacob. So instead of running away from his fear, Jacob has to confront his fear. And that's where we pick it up in today's passage. See, often it's when we confront and overcome our biggest obstacles, our biggest fears. It's often these moments that we look back on later in life and go, you know, that was probably, you know, the most important moment in my life. You know, our biggest moments are often the moments in which we face our biggest fears, our biggest obstacles. So I've got a few examples of people you might know. Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple. 
He was diagnosed with cancer in 2003. He survives this one. And four years later, Apple releases the very first iPhone. It's a huge technological business achievement in the history of our world. Um, for old football fans, this is the original Ronaldo, the Brazilian one, the one that I grew up watching. Uh, he ruptured his knee in 1999. It's a huge injury. It takes him out for two years. The year he comes back, 2002, Brazil wins the World Cup. He wins the World Cup for Brazil. Or the late Queen Elizabeth. Her biggest moment, arguably, was when she became queen, age of 25, when her father dies. See, our lives are often defined by how we confront our biggest fears and our biggest troubles. It could be a long-term illness, it could be a really difficult season with the family, it could be something big at work or something big at school, or even a particular person in your life, like Esau was to Jacob, or whatever it is that keeps you up at night. How we face troubles, how we face our fears, will have a huge impact on our future. And so there's a bit to learn about this in the scripture, but more importantly, I pray and hope that there'll be lots to learn about God and how he has and will help us in the Lord Jesus. So if you keep your Bibles open to Genesis 32, uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 1, and we're looking at a God who gives strength and comfort. Uh, So Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. As Jacob goes to face Esau, to confront his big fear, God meets him through his angels. And did you notice how great a comfort these angels were to to Jacob? So much so that he names this place Mahanaim, which means God's camp. Now, when you see the word camp, don't think of like tents or something like that. Don't think of a campsite. Um, Think of camps as in armies or like a battalion of soldiers. Uh, Sometimes you might know this. Sometimes in the Bible, God is called the Lord of hosts. The word host is actually the same word here as the word camp. So the Lord of hosts is the Lord of camps, the Lord of armies. These angels that we read about here are his army. They're his camp. Now glance down in the Bible Uh, We didn't read this, but glance down to verse 7. It's up on the screen as well. Jacob, we read, divided the people who are with him into two groups or camps, if you look at your footnote. Jacob divides his people into two camps, so that if Esau attacks one camp, the other one can escape. So, can you see that there is God's camp here, and then Jacob's camp? And there's God's army of angels And then there's Jacob's group, you know, it probably wasn't an army, but, you know, I guess they were his camp, they were ready for for fighting, I guess, uh, for the worst, Jacob's camp. Notice also in verse 3, Jacob sends messengers. And some of you might know that the word for angel in the Bible is the same word as the word for messenger. So God sends his messengers, his angels, and Jacob sends his messengers, who are human. You know, they're not angelic, but... It's his messengers. But can you see that there's this play going on here? God does something, and Jacob does something. This is something that uh, we've got to think about. Because when we face troubles, 
Trusting God doesn't mean that we sit back and don't try to do anything. For example, if I'm sick, trusting God doesn't mean that I don't go see a doctor or can't see a doctor. No, God might use the doctor to heal me. But trusting God means that even though I might go to see the doctor, even though we might do things to confront or face our fears, God is still the only one. God is still the only one we can truly and ultimately rely on. God, not us, not anyone else. God is the only one we can find our ultimate strength and comfort in. Uh, we'll see this play out in this story because this is a lesson that Jacob must learn. And it's a lesson that he'll learn with some pain. And so we now turn to this rather bizarre episode where Jacob wrestles God. Um, so let's read from verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, uh, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, uh, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Jacob is all alone when he meets God and wrestles with him. We, this man that we read, he, we later realize that he is God. So Jacob sends his family ahead. He sends all his possessions across the, the stream. He's fearing Esau. He's stripped in this moment of all that he has. He's all alone. He's left all alone. Everything that he has accumulated, everything that he has gotten in life, everything that he has worked for in this moment, it's taken away from him. And I wonder if it reminds us that the most important moments in our lives often when we realize that we have nothing else apart from God. It's when we realize, like Jacob does here, that there's nothing, no possession that we own. There's no one, no person in our lives that can truly help us and be there for us completely except for God. In, the, in these moments, instead of running away from God, we need to run to God. We need to, to meet God. See, this story is actually full of tension. This tension builds up as Jacob has to confront his great fear, Esau. Yet the climax of this story is not when Jacob meets Esau. It's actually here when Jacob meets God, when Jacob confronts God himself. See, whatever great fear or trouble that you have to face, whatever it is that keeps you up at night, it's important for sure to face it, to confront the fear, to confront the trouble. But it's more important that you face God in it. It's more important you run to God. It's more important you meet God. It's more important you wrestle with God. Jacob wrestles with God. He's, he's full-on grappling with God. It's incredible. And verse 25, it's incredible. God couldn't overpower him. Not because God isn't strong enough. He is strong enough. He just touches Jacob's hip and dislocates it. You know, who else can do that apart from God? But perhaps he couldn't overpower Jacob because Jacob was so persistent. Jacob wouldn't let God go. Even though, you know, even when he does have to go, Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He won't let God go. He's clinging on to God until he gets a blessing. There's so much to say here, but I think there's something really awesome and gracious about God to reflect on. That God would be so gracious as to meet Jacob in this really raw and vulnerable moment. But not just that, but to limit his power, to let Jacob wrestle him, 
And yet he also reminds Jacob in this moment that he is the awesome God of the universe who can just touch his hip and dislocate it. Jacob realizes, and he's in awe of this, he realizes that he has seen God face to face and been spared. See, God is gracious and awesome and powerful at the same time. He could destroy Jacob, but he lets him wrestle with him. Jacob names this place Peniel because he saw God face to face, and yet his life was spared. Jacob, uh, he'll name things in, in, uh, in this story. He'll name things to remind himself of key moments in his life, moments that God has done something remarkable for him. It's maybe the equivalent of putting like, you know, your, a really important verse that, that you know, changed your life, putting it up on the fridge or in your wallet or, you know, in your room, on the wall. But the naming that Jacob does, Jacob's naming of things, isn't as important as God's naming of him or renaming of him. God gives Jacob here a new name, Israel, which means the one who struggles with God. He struggles with God. Jacob struggled. He wrestled with God. And God gives him a new name because Jacob is a new person. He's no longer the person who deceives for a blessing. Remember that Jacob can mean deceiver. No longer is he the one who deceives for a blessing. Now Jacob is the one who struggles with God for a blessing, Israel. And I really think this is Jacob's most commendable moment. Uh, For the most part in Genesis, he's been a bit of a dodgy guy, right? You wouldn't want your kids to be like Jacob. But here, it's different, isn't it? Because here, Jacob trusts God more than himself more than he does himself. Here Jacob realizes that he can't do it all himself, that he really needs God, and that's really commendable. But did you notice that Jacob has a limp because of this? This limp will remain with him for, forever. Um, his hip remains dislocated. And did you notice that God doesn't take away the problem of Esau? Jacob still has to face Esau. God didn't take away his trouble God actually gave him more pain. I remember someone telling me, the worst thing God can ever do for you is to give you a comfortable life. The worst thing God can do for you is to take away all your pain, to take away all your troubles, take away all your fears, to make your life as easy and enjoyable and pain-free as possible. Why is that the worst thing? Because in that moment, you'll realize that you don't need God. In that moment, you won't trust God. You trust yourself and turn away from the God who is both gracious and awesome. See, God wants his people to wrestle him, to struggle with him in prayer and in faith, to learn to trust him as they go through hardship. God wants you to face him, to rely on him as you face your fears, whatever they are. And in these moments, there will be pain. It will hurt But God's grace and his blessing are always there if you stop and look. And the pain is only ever temporary. Because God uses these things to prepare us for a future. He's preparing us for a future. See, there is a future in mind for Jacob, particularly as we turn to our final reading in chapter 35. The meeting that God has with Jacob that we just looked at. It's a bit of a gateway moment for Jacob as he enters the promised land. Um, The chapters that follow, 
In chapter 33, Jacob does meet Esau, and he, does, he has been changed. It's remarkable. Esau welcomes Jacob. There's this beautiful reconciliation. And Jacob actually returns the blessing that he stole from him. And yet, chapter 34, it's a really horrible story. Um, the story of Dinah, um, Jacob's daughter. I'll leave you to read it yourself. But something that's really striking in this horrible story in chapter 34 is how Jacob, and particularly his sons, they don't ask God for help. They don't seek God for his guidance. They take matters into their own hands. And it's a repetition. It's the same mistake that we've seen in Genesis, in this family. It's the same mistake that Abraham did, and Abraham and Sarah did with the episode with Hagar, if you remember. Same, same mistake that Rebecca and Isaac do. Particularly Rebecca, she masterminds herself the deception that Jacob did of his dad to get the blessing. See, Jacob and his family need to learn. They need to learn to solely trust in the Lord and not themselves. And that's the situation as we come to chapter 35. Chapter 35, verse 1. Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Now, why does God have to identify himself here to Jacob? Why does he have to say that he is the God who you know, was with him, helped him, appeared to him when he was fleeing Esau? Why doesn't God just say, can you build an altar for me? Why does God have to identify himself? It's probably because there were other gods in their lives. Jacob and his family had other gods as well. In chapter 31, Jacob's wife, Rachel, steals some of her dad's household gods or idols. And see what Jacob says here in verse 2, up on the screen as well. He says, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you that are among you. There are other gods amongst them. There are other gods in their hearts. And that needs to change. Verse 3, Jacob says, Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and who has been with me wherever I have gone. Jacob realizes that he and his family need to change. They need to reform. And he's taking the lead. He's going to teach his family that the true God is the only one who has a track record of being there for him when he's been in trouble. And for his entire life, the only God that he can trust must now be the only God they worship. Uh, we might look back at you know, these idols and all that and think you know, how primitive and backward people were in that time. To worship you know, the God of rain or the God of wealth or to bow down and spend hours you know, you know bowing down to this golden statue that you've just made, you know, how backward, how primitive. But maybe we're so sophisticated now in the 21st century that maybe we're so sophisticated that instead of worshipping a god of money, we just worship money itself. Instead of worshipping a god of pleasure or a god of success or a god of education, we just worship pleasure and success and education. Have you realized that none of these things can actually help us in our most needy, in our lowest, most vulnerable moments? Um, Jacinta, she's studying medicine. She, she was sharing with me last week um, how in one of her classes they were saying, the lecturer was saying that 
No one, when they're lying on the hospital bed facing death, no one thinks about how much money they've made or what ed education they've had or what success they've achieved. And we recognize that in the world. See, none of these things, none of the idols we worship can ever bring the comfort and the help that we crave and need when we have nothing left. The only God we can trust is the only God we must worship. In verses 4 and 5, this is what they, they did. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Verse 5 is really interesting, isn't it? God just protects them. We don't really know how he does it, but he just does. He protects his people. And if you look down to verse 9, God appears to Jacob again and blesses him. And these are the same blessings that we've seen before. He's already given them to Jacob before. And God's reminding him about this land and the descendants that he is going to give him. He's promising to give him. And Jacob responds with thanksgiving. That's how this story ends. Jacob is so thankful to God. That's what the drink offering that he pours out is all about. But here in this moment, in these verses, is a tiny picture of what the future holds. This is a tiny picture of the future that the whole Bible, the whole story of the Bible is actually working towards. And that picture is kind of summarized in this. Sorry, we can go back. Um, sorry, Jess. It's, uh, it's the one that says, yeah, there we go. This is the picture that the Bible is working towards. God's people, God's chosen people, who are in God's place, the land that he's given them, enjoying his blessing. And now finally in this chapter in 35, they are under his rule completely. There's a picture. This picture develops throughout the biblical story. But in this chapter, Genesis 35, it's all about the last bit. It's all about submitting themselves under God's rule. Jacob and his family... They're in the land, they're God's people, they're enjoying his blessing. Now they fully needed, what they needed to do is fully submit themselves under God's rule, worshipping only God. Now this, as you know, in the rest of the Old Testament, will be a constant struggle, the last bit, under, being under God's rule. It will be a constant struggle for the people of Israel for generations to come. Will they worship God or will they worship idols? And I think the problem is hinted at, perhaps in verse 2, where Jacob says, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves. Purify yourselves. That's the problem. They can't purify themselves. We can't fully purify our hearts by ourselves. Only God can. And the rest of the Old Testament will show that. And God does purify our hearts. Because the story of the Bible is actually a story of a God who faced our greatest fear to secure for us our greatest future. And the climax of this biblical story happens when the God-man who wrestled Jacob, when Jacob is all alone, this man finds that he is now all alone. Jesus is left all alone. Every person in his life has deserted him, and everything is about to be taken away from him as he is stripped bare and naked on the cross. 
And just like God sent his angels to strengthen Jacob at Mahanaim, God sends his angel to strengthen Jesus at Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, in this garden, Jesus wrestled with his father. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. But instead of being blessed, Jesus knew he was taking a curse, that he was going to hang on the cross. See, the cross is Jesus' most defining moment. It's his biggest moment. But he's not facing his greatest fear. He's, great, he's facing our greatest fear, facing the horror of judgment and wrath our sins deserved. He, Jesus took that all upon himself. And friends, this moment of the cross is actually our biggest moment too. It's the moment that we look back on and say, this is the most important thing that has happened to me. Because in this moment when Jesus died on the cross, he secured our greatest future. A future where we, as God's people, living under his rule, will be in God's place forever in heaven, enjoying his blessing, enjoying God's blessing of eternal life with him. That's our future. And we know that we will be there because of Jesus and what he's done on the cross. Let's give thanks to him. Father, you are so good and gracious. You are the only one we can ultimately and truly rely on. And you've demonstrated how much you loved us when you sent your son Jesus to save us. With you, we have all that we need. Help us, Lord, to make you the first in our lives, the center of our hearts, the only one we love and worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.